Namaskar. Hello and welcome to P Guru's channel. I'm your host Shri Ayer. Monday nights are back to Abhijit nights. We apologize for not bringing him to you last week, but we hope to continue this like clockwork. So, without further delay, let's welcome Abhijit Ayer Mitra. Abhijit, well, well, very well, welcome to you. Well, well, very well. And I'm very sorry I couldn't make it last week. As you know, I was touring in Israel. <laughs> Learning Excellent. how to finish off terrorists. <laughs> Uh, good, good learning. Um, viewers, I want you to listen to a very small snippet of an excellent album my good friend Dr. Kaniks, Kanikeshwaran has composed. This is about Ramayana. And the part that I'm going to play is called The March of the Vanaras. And this whole thing is called Shadow Ram. We're giving you in the description the complete playlist. I urge you all to listen to it. It's choreographed, composed, and the lyrics are written by Dr. Kanik Kanikeswaran. It's a treat. Here is a sample. Go ahead. I hope you've got enough of a teaser here to go listen to the entire track. My favorite one is March of the Vanaras. There is also the Enchanted Deer. And the original, the starting theme is also beautiful. Beautiful raga is chosen and it just takes you back to Hampi, to uh, where, you know, uh, Rama meets uh, uh, Hanuman and so on and so forth. Have a good listen. Thank you very much for uh, listening to this. Abhijit, let's jump straight into questions. Here's the first question for you. Mandara Karnik wants to know, General Pandey will be the first engineer slash sapper as the army chief. What prevented engineers from rising to the top post in the past? So, you know, it used to be this infantry uh, heavy thing, right? It was pretty much the infantry was the elite. There's a lot of I hate to use that word casteism, but there's a lot of um, it, it's not casteism. What do you call it? It's branchism within the army, right? Mm -hmm. Because the infantry used to take the highest casualties. They'd go in first and things like that. It's actually been like that for a lot of armies. You know, the Indian army isn't the only one like that. Uh, uh, the, the Israeli army also, you would mostly have infantry uh, 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 commanders leading it. I think it's, in many ways, it's, I guess it's their due, but it's also, I think, at the end of its uh, shelf life. Because if you still have that branches of within the army, it means that all the silos within the army aren't functioning cooperatively uh, together. All right. So that's been a big problem. It continues to be a big problem. Uh, I, I'm still not convinced that this period is over. Because remember, we've only had one air chief who was a helicopter pilot and one who was a transport. Was he a transport pilot? I don't 
I forget now. But uh, in the Navy, you keep getting people from different branches come up. So it's, let's see. I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Wonderful. Next question, please. Chaitanya Naidu wants to know your views on Pakistani army strike in Afghanistan targeting the TTP. That's the first question. So, uh, very curious, isn't it? They've been screaming about violation of sovereignty. And like I said, I've, uh, if you read my piece uh, that appeared on Chanakya Forum about two, three years back, uh, I've been saying for a while that the Tehreek-e Taliban Pakistan, uh, but even the Afghan Taliban, is viciously anti-Pakistan. Uh, you know, when I was interviewing them, I didn't realize who was Haqqani Network and who was Quetta uh, 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 Shura and things like that. Uh, I had a feeling that maybe the Haqqani Network would not be, but it turns out that that sampling that I did in Afghanistan was reasonably accurate. They are viciously anti-Pakistan and they are now doing to Pakistan what Pakistan was doing to Afghanistan, claiming, oh, you know, we don't have control of our own territory, so, you know, deal with it. Uh, now, uh, what Pakistan has done to Afghanistan, bombing Afghan territory, is a significant escalation. There are going to be costs. Because remember, Pakistan claims the same with India. Remember, oh, we can't control terror attacks that come out of here, but don't you dare come and bomb our territory. Afghanistan is going to retaliate formally some way for this. How... In what fashion and where, I don't know, but it will be done. There will be some significant attack that happens in response in Pakistan sometime soon. Next question is on ISKP's rocket attacks targeting Uzbek army position in Termas. Who has actual control in Afghanistan? Nobody. Uh, therein lies the problem. Because the Haqqani network and co are so disaggregated, you're going to have a lot of... Uh, it's essentially a feudal agglomeration. So there is some kind of control, but when we say control, it's very loose. It's like, you know, when we say the German government controls Germany, it controls Germany absolutely, because in Germany only the state has the monopoly on violence. In India, when you say the Indian government controls uh, 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 India, it's open to significant interpretation when you've had seven, eight riots in Delhi within four or five kilometers of Rashtrapati Bhavan. So, uh, you know, the, the, when you say who controls Afghanistan, it's even more backward than India. So effectively, nobody does. Abhishek wants to know, Saudi and UAE are being provided with high-tech military equipment. If, suppose in future, there is a regime change or power comes in hand of Islamists, what consequence will it have? Has anyone thought of it? Well, it's not coming in the hand of Islamists, not in the UAE and not in Saudi Arabia for one very simple reason. The power structures are so institutionalized, it's going to be virtually... Uh, impossible to do it. Much more so. The institutionalization is much greater in the UAE than it is in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia will take about 15 to 20 years of MBS's rule to stabilize that uh, formalization. But there's no looking back from there. Okay. Remember, Islamists come to power when things become really bad internationally. 
remember the Khomeini and Co gang came to power in Iran, where oil prices dropped dramatically and it destroyed the Iranian growth budget. Uh, you're not seeing that happen right now. So for right now, there is no scope of that, at least in the Emirates. The security state is so pervasive. I do not see any prospects of that happening. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, it is slowly getting to that point. It is getting to the Amirati point. It is going to get better. Uh, so, you know, chins up. No need to worry about that for the time being. Mandar Karnik again. The, chi the Chinese trade imbalance with India keeps rising. Why is India not putting the brakes on Chinese trade? Does economic power escape our strategic thinking? Yes, it does. Uh, also, remember, because we are a services economy, we depend a lot on Chinese manufacturing to fuel our services economy. Uh, and the problem is, you know, when you have issues like you can't push through a land bill, you can't push through a labor bill properly. Uh, uh, or your labor bill is so communistic that it makes China look uh, a free market by comparison. Uh, you're not going to attract manufacturing. Remember all those manufacturing plants that left China, most of them went to Vietnam. None of them actually came to, very few came to India, like four or five came to India, I think. So you yourself are not attractive towards manufacturing. You don't understand why you're not attractive towards manufacturing. When you bring about the points to the government, the government gets on a defensive and they don't want to talk about it. Uh, or, you know, you're accused of having an agenda, this, that. So in that circumstance, you can't, unless you get into manufacturing, you can't really cope up with China. It's going to take you a very, very long time. Next one, please. Chai wants to know, it's been more than six months since Taliban came to power. How are Pak Taliban and India Taliban relations now? Hmm. Uh, what do you mean India Taliban? Uh, I mean, relations between India and Taliban. Like, we don't oh, have... Oh, okay, okay. Okay, right. So, India should be having excellent relations with the Taliban. Uh... Again, like I said, uh, when I met the Taliban, <coughs> I was greeted with nothing other than love. Uh, and every time we talk about Pakistan, the moment I'd say Pakistan, the first reaction would be, Phew! and then they'd start talking about Pakistan. Uh, I think we've miscalculated. We're continuing to miscalculate. Uh, you know, this kind of a policy can't really sell. Uh, at some point, you will be held to account. Something will be turned on you at some point and then it will be too late. This is the problem with India is we tend to be too weak uh, and too immobile in reorienting our policies. Uh, so India-Taliban relations right now don't really exist. Pak-Taliban relations are saring, 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 saring. There isn't a day that goes by where the relations aren't worse than the previous day. Okay. It's a strategic opportunity. We need to understand that. We need to use that. Of course, we won't. That's a different matter. Karan Pandita wants to know, what are your views on censorship done on ads, speech, etc. by MP Home Minister, which he says that are anti-Hindu? The recent case being Sveta Tiwari bra controversy. See, I've always held that competitive religious regression is never a good idea. I don't think Hindus get so upset at their gods being mocked and things like that, except that one community 
gets a street veto and other communities do not. And so that particular community has been held up as a paragon of regressive virtue that every other uh, community wants to imitate in its intolerance. The answer to this question, the answer to regressive politics is not competitive regressive politics, it's uncompromising secularism, which is why you need to allow blasphemy and things like that. It needs to be done openly. Of course, it's a function of law and order. Now, we know for a fact this government, no government in India, not just this government, takes law and order seriously. It's a tool for them to be used. And this is where, you know, the problem is a system of systems problem. I've always told you this. The answer is never a single fold answer. It's always linked to something else. Why are we not able to enforce proper freedom of speech in India? Because your police is rotten. Because your judiciary is even more rotten. Okay, You have no such thing as a consistent ruling. You don't have something called the rule of law in India. It's what a judge decides on any particular given day, depending on uh, if the dal in his house was made well or the chicken was burnt or whatever he had, uh, had for lunch that day. You'll get a ruling, he or she, the lunch based on, uh, you'll get a ruling based on that. Police, again, they're political tools. There's nothing you can do. So this, unfortunately, is what ends up happening. Reed Jyoti Hati wants to know, will the energy wokeism destroy Europe with rising inflation and electoral gains of the far-right groups? I worry as an incoming engineer to Germany. Uh, not really. See, energy, I would call it energy wokeism. Moving towards sustainable energy, think of it this way. You know, no, normally I detest wokeism. Here, there's actually a very logical rationale to it. It's creating a completely new economy. Okay, so when you go in, I, I'm not a big fan of wind power. I can never realistically support wind power. But if you go in for solar, if you go in for nuclear, it creates a completely different supply chain logistic. It makes things, I mean, forget the cleaner part of it. The cleaner part of it is one thing, but it creates huge new economies within the country. It creates a higher level of skilling. It brings back manufacturing and things like that in a way that hasn't been done for a long time. So it, it's a good thing to go into. Where the electoral gains of the far right will happen is when you make it ideological to the point of stupidity. Ideological German green energy ideologically, I think, is sustainable. But German compulsion ideology based on the Ukraine war and cutting off Russian gas supplies is not sustainable. That is more likely because the price rises and shortages and things like that are much more likely to create electoral gains for the far right in Germany. The second vector you need to look at in Germany is a renewal of German militarism. Now, now that the budget is going to be enhanced and Germany is no longer going to be uh, 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 treating its military as some kind of a joke, uh, I'm very curious to see how that renewed German military culture develops. Because if you're going to give a budget of $100 billion a year, that is going to be the second or third biggest defense budget in the world. 
you cannot be militarizing a country without building up a military ethos and an ethos of intervention and actually taking action. You know, they're not just meant for parades and things like that. So I'm very curious to see what that ends up with. Will that be a shift in what the German national character is? I don't know. These are very hard to predict. Nothing might happen. Nothing might happen. But something might also happen. Uh, that said, if you're facing up, if your definition of the far right is alternative for Deutschland, I wouldn't be so worried. Uh, the people who need to be truly worried about AFD are the delinquent minorities. A lot of the second generation Turks and the uh, immigrants that have come up in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, you know, Indians have a very good reputation. In they don't have a bad reputation. The Vietnamese don't have a bad reputation and things like that. So it will be fine. Chetan Pai wants to know, is the RSS based on European Enlightenment values? No, it isn't. The RSS is an entirely separate uh, it's a completely separate origin. I don't think the parallels are equal to anything. They say, you know, oh, it's like the Nazi party or it, it really isn't. Okay. It's, it's an understanding of politics in the 1910s, 1920, 1930s, and the way those politics evolve and the need for a political Hindu. So it's actually a very modern construct. It isn't a European Enlightenment value. It is, in fact, a industrial manufacturing type political movement that converts a certain religious group into political power, which at that point that still is extremely necessary. But I would say it's a European enlightenment value. No? Karan Pandita wants to know, what are your views on Swatantra Party? Do you think a truly secular right-wing alternative would have been better against Congress than BJP? I can tell you the Swatantra Party didn't have the kind of idiots uh, the BJP has. I mean, the average IQ of one Swatantra Party leader was probably more than the union cabinet right now. But uh, uh, again, uh, there's nothing much we can do because remember, the Swatantra Party never achieved the goals it set out to achieve. Today, I think the BJP essentially created what is the right space. But they're not right wing at all. See, they're just saffron communists. So they created the political Hindu space as we realized. They used to be right-wing. They learned all the wrong lessons from India shining and Vajpayee's defeat, which was that market-friendly does not yield votes. Vajpayee did not lose because of market-friendly policies. Remember that. Vajpayee lost because the RSS decided to screw him over and they refused to come out and campaign in that particular election. Okay. And why did they so, do that? They were just upset with him for being not Hindutvavadi enough and things like that. Not giving them enough bhav. There was a lot of tension between Vajpayee and the RSS leader at that point of time. So it was uh, it was just a completely different ballgame, but they drew all the wrong lessons. Even today, I keep saying this, the only way to defeat the BJP is to outflank it from the right and not from the left.
Abhishek wants to know, could India have become a permanent member of UNSC in 1952? Was it legally possible at all? Yes. I think through the 50s, it was very much a possibility because Taiwan wouldn't have voted against us. Uh, the USSR wouldn't have voted against us. Uh, America and Britain wanted us. If we had played our game right, yes, we could have become. And yes, it could. the rules could have always been changed. Yes. Krishna Aghoram wants to know, Abhijit, how do you see the Sri Lankan situation panning out? Look, it's going to take at least minimum two to three years for that country to stabilize. Now, the question is, how does the Rajapaksa family want to play its politics? It can go back to, you know, the Jayavardhane days and the Bandaranaike days and incite riots against the Tamil minority, uh, in which case you're headed for another civil war. So it very much depends on what Sinhala nationalists decide to do next and there's no way we can predict what they decide to do because you know desperate times call for desperate measures. I'm hoping they will show leadership. I fear that they might not. Ashish Sharma wants to know, does Israel really empathize with Hindus as a civilizational ally, ally because we have not put forth our civilizational aspirations to the world nor do our institutions reflect it? Wrong question. Mm, no. Uh, Israelis really don't give da uh, give a damn about India. I can tell you that very straight. Uh, we have this great emotional attachment to Israel, but I've never noticed a similar emotional attachment in Israel to India. Uh, I know a lot of uh, uh, Israeli students after they finish their military service, the compulsory military service, they come to India. Uh, but you'll see that translate almost exactly zero into any love of Indian culture or anything in Israel. Okay. Uh, simple thing, even food. Uh, you won't even see the slightest influence of Indian food. In fact, Indian food is slightly tough. Half decent Indian food and just Indian food period is tough to almost impossible to come across in most of Israel. In Tel Aviv, yeah, you get it. Not very good. But even otherwise, you know, we believe that they have this great love for India or whatever, they're kind of indifferent to India. Uh, I've never noticed any uh, particular affection. No. Chai wants to know, uh, ask you and I, how did conflict studies and visiting war zones impact your emotional health? Did it increase your stress and sadness or did it make you desensitized towards human suffering? Mm, desensitized actually because uh, look I mean growing up in India you see so much death you're already desensitized uh, and when you go there especially when you work in my line which is I started off in nuclear and in nuclear the nuclear military things you have to be absolutely cold you can't be worried about how many million people are going to die from a nuclear strike and things like that you'll go mad if you uh, do that so you have to be extremely immoral and inured to violence in that sense. And what I've realized is visiting war zones you do. India, in a sense, prepares you to be completely desensitized. Simple example. How many of you will see somebody hungry on the road in India begging or injured? in an accident and just ignore them and go past. You have your own reasons because you know 
that begging is a collective enterprise it's a criminal enterprise where kids are kidnapped and they put into it, it it's run like a ilaka like a territory uh you know that if you go help the guy in the road accident the case will most probably be on you uh because the guy might be poor he might have no uh 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 option other than to get money out of you because he's only seen you it happens very commonly which is why nobody helps anybody when they get into a road accident that desensitization actually prepares you for a war zone much better uh i'm not saying it's a good thing but it is what it is next question please aditya wants to know nicholas taleb said that the sign of a developed country is in lack of prestige for its government officials do you agree uh i don't know if it's lack of prestige i would say it's a lack of different rules for different folks where you have a prestige so in france you don't get any special treatment for being a government official but you do get recognition you do get respect okay uh that is unique to france because in france the civil service is chosen from the very best you are picked at an early age for it it doesn't matter what your socio economic background is it's a clear focus they pick they choose this kid is good like the israelis pick you for unit 8200 for a uh, specialized training in uh, covert warfare the french pick you for government service and i can honestly tell you i've never seen a better bureaucratic and diplomatic service than the french one so it's i i would complete i i think on generically speaking yes nicolas taleb is correct but there are significant exceptions to that virendra patel wants to know your opinion on vs naipaul what do you think he understood the hindu why do you think he understood the hindu psyche even though he is from an elite background because he was in the west indies where he was a minority it his identity was more important to him than being in india where you are the majority and you are never made aware of your ethnic identity mr lee wants to know do you see a relationship between victoria nolan's march india visit and the sudden ramp up in communal violence this month in india correlation yes causation i'm not too sure but wherever victoria nolan goes something calamitous and catastrophic happens so there is that there is past record there is correlation i'm not too sure of causation though uh you know all these press narratives that have been doing the rounds in the western press for the last 8 9 10 years the uh american embassy embracing subnational diplomacy and all that crap openly promoting all these left wing naxalites to their uh, embassy and their embassy twitter handle yeah uh i don't think it's directly caused by victoria newland the victoria newland might be a uh, she's a symptom let's put it that way sandman 1306 why did zari pataka never have the royal insign insignia of shivaji maharaj or house of peshwa later on no idea 
So I don't even that. know who Zeri Pataka is. Yeah, me neither. Uh, ask three. Amy Wax, professor at Pennsylvania, recently attacked Indian Americans as new Jews and questioned their loyalty to US because they largely vote Democrat. Don't Jews also vote Democrats? Why are Indian Americans targeted? You want to take a shot at this? Mm. Well, look, uh, I don't think that was the only thing she said. She said a lot of important things. Uh, I, I think you're oversimplifying what she said. And she was spot on, by the way. Okay, she was spot on that most of the Indians in the Bay Area are Brahmins. Like, for example, Sri Ayer, who's a virulent Democrat voter. You know, he used to keep holding... I remember when he used to come to Delhi in um, 2016, he used to hold a picture of Hillary and take it around in front of him everywhere. He used to wear a Hillary uh, uh, icon, showing Hillary as uh, uh, Radha and Bill Clinton as Krishna and take it around everywhere and say, vote Hillary, vote Bill Clinton, vote Hillary, vote Bill Clinton. To everyone. But okay, jokes aside. So your imagination is on overdrive today. But okay, so seriously speaking, Shri is the freak. Overwhelmingly, even though ethnically he's very common, he is the Brahmin NRI type settled in the Bay Area. He's the freak in that he has the self-confidence to not vote for Democrats. Most of those people out there desperately need validation and a hive mentality, and they tend to vote Democrat to the point where they're not even think they, they think of themselves as Indians first and as Americans second in a sense, though they like to hold up their Americanness. Uh, don't Jews also vote Democrat? Yes, they do. And this is where Amy Wax was wrong. Because the overwhelming majority of Jews are viciously anti-Republican and they tend to vote for Democrats. They just hide it in a different set of uh, uh, nuances. The way they express it is different. Okay. Uh, they also have the backup in that Netanyahu and a conservative government in Israel will always be much more pro-Republican than it will be pro-Democrat, openly so, and they will openly interfere in American elections. So it's it's the question of balancing and things like that, but I don't think Amy Wax was wrong. You know, I mean, you're coming from essentially what is a third world shithole landing up in America and you embrace this woke culture and you want to turn America into the same third world shithole that you left. I'm sorry, that's not a very smart uh, 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 this thing. You know, uh, my take on this whole thing, Abhijit, is she seemed, to, she seemed to be singling out a specific person who's a lawyer and a Brahmin. And the only one that I know who fits that bill is Suhak Shukla of Hindu American Foundation. I wonder if she was giving some, you know, one of its backhanded compliments or whatever. But, you know, why should we be giving a no-name professor so much notoriety or fame by talking about it? She's just another Jew, confused Jew. I agree. She's just confused. She's completely removed from reality. In fact, you know what? The ACJ, the... Uh, uh, what's the full form of ACJ? American... AJC, American Jewish, American Jewish oh. Council. 
They've turned vitriolically anti-Indian. Uh, uh, they've been condemning the Modi government as fascist, Hindutva as Nazism and things like that. And there's nothing you can do about it. So there is that. Yeah, I agree. There is a singling out. I Was it directed at Suhag Shukla? I don't know. It's because you see, if you listen to the entire thing, and, and the, the, the male anchor of Fox News, Tucker Carlson, was, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, sometimes your ugly side comes out. I don't think he really meant what he said there, but she's specifically talking about one Brahmin lawyer. I don't know of any other prominent Brahmin lawyer who happens to be a female. That is why I'm I don't this. think Suhag is that uh, 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 pro-democrat, huh? No, she's not. She, she so so. I don't she, think it was. She's Suhag. the face of HAF, though. Hold on, she's the face of HAF, and some of these people, uh, HAF, and most of the Hindus. Who have kind of woken up from this, this uh, you know mentality of being democrat? They tend to be republican. At least they are saying that they are better than these people. We know this devil. This is an unknown angel, and this is a dangerous angel. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, all the effort that was put in during Trump era of Modi coming and helping out and all that stuff, it moved the needle by ten percentage points. It used to be eighty twenty democrat. Now it is 70-30. That's it. So there's a yeah. long way to go. Long there's a long to... way to go. Indians need to realize that they need to put their eggs in all baskets. That said, I don't think, I think most of the Indian diaspora out there, I'm sorry to say this, but at some level, I do agree with Amy Wax, they're real scum. They're social climbing, degrade scum that have never managed to outgrow the uh, class of birth that they were born into. You know, you know, somebody mentioned that the dream for any Indian American is to have his picture taken with some political personality, like Obama. not with some, with a with a lefty political personality like Obama or Bill Clinton or a Democrat, mm -hmm. not with a Republican. Anyway, next question, please. Chai wants to know. I saw your older videos where you used to do French cut shave. It used to look good on you. Is there any reason why you stopped doing it? Yeah, I just keep changing my look and my this every now and then. So, you know, I actually shaved my head even before I went bald. And the main reason for it was I was just getting tired of having to go. I used to have very lush hair. It used to grow very fast. And what would happen is I'd keep getting this uh, every two weeks, just going and wasting an hour in a barber shop was a bit too much for me. So I just decided to say Govinda and remove all of it. So I actually shaved my hair even before I grew bald and I've experimented with lots of different hairstyles and sorry, face styles. I don't have any hair to experiment though. When I did have hair, I did experiment. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's, this is it. Aditya wants to know, how did leftists and communists get so much control of mainstream media? At what point of history was the Rubicon crossed? Mostly after the fall of the USSR. Okay. Uh, and there's a reason to it. It's slightly before the fall of the USSR, by 88-89, when a detente had been reached with America. Because what happened is, remember, 
if you look at history, it's always been the humanities that have controlled power. Never science, never anything uh, 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 hard and technical. It's always been the humanities that have controlled power historically. Because humanities is about controlling human beings. How they think, what they think, where they think, when they think, etc., etc., etc. And what happened was that essentially it had been building up to that because the right tends to focus heavily on science and jobs and things like that. The left tends to focus on how to control the human being. So what ended up happening was that you had a lot of uh, emphasis on expanding the scope of humanity studies. Like Lenin used to say, every idea is worth a thousand pages of theory. And so you look by the 60s and 70s, I would say 80 to 90 percent of all humanities literature, even in America, was left wing. Even in a right wing book today, 80 to 90 percent of the jargon used would have been invented by the left. So first, there was a capture of the words and the jargon and the constructs. The right never contested, it just chose to adapt it to its own needs. But once the Soviet Union broke and that innate hostility to communism ended, the takeover of American academia and media then started becoming complete. Okay. And once it becomes institutionalized in America, it filters down everywhere, and that's exactly what happened. Malyaban Bhattacharya wants to know, don't you think that the Hindutva model like that likes of you wished has to be, be not been up to the standards instead going a bit towards far right judging by incidents in Gujarat and MP? No, I think in fact it's been going towards the far left. Uh, you know, uh, underperformance on economics, underperformance on all important uh, 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 issues of government, internal security, defense, uh, uh, infrastructure, law and order, everything. And once you start failing in controlling the basics, you invariably have to move towards uh, uh, identity politics, which is invariably what happens. If anything, the BJP is getting more and more secularized to the point where it's indistinguishable from the Congress. Setu Ram wants to know, Will putting money in hands of people really improve India's economy or will people become lazy spending their money in TASMAC or buy Chinese products? Well, look, it means what do you, what do you mean by put money into people's hands? Just giving dole outs is never going to improve your economy. Okay. On the other hand, uh, improving their propensity uh, their disposable income and their propensity to consume will improve the economy. Okay, so it depends on how you're doing it. It's not just that you're doing it. This is like, you know, rich, spoiled billionaire brat getting a billion dollars. He's going to waste it. But if he has earned the money, he will use that money very, very carefully. So therein lies the difference. And by the way, Tasmac is not such a bad thing to buy, huh? Uh, uh, the question, like I said, is who buys it? Uh, there's a fantastic Tasmac uh, uh, brandy. I think, uh, not brandy, it's a rum. It's the best rum. 
I would say it competes with the finest Venezuelan or uh, Colombian or uh, Dominican Republic rums. It's something called Copper Barrel. Try it. You will see what amazing rums India can produce. It's dirt cheap. It's 400 rupees a bottle in uh, Tasmac in Tamil Nadu. But what you see people lined up at Tasmac shops for is not for the Copper Barrel. It's that 20 rupee uh, 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 a brandy or that 20 rupee vodka or that 20 rupee whiskey which they only want to drink to get drunk so the booze also matters if you invest in copper barrel and don't get drunk you'll be helping grow uh, produce fantastic rum in india which is a huge value add if you don't well i mean if you settle for 20 40 rupees it's not so like i said where and how where you're coming from and how you do it is just as important as what you do. Aditya B wants to know, what exactly is your job description? Just want to understand what a senior fellow in a think tank does. Okay. So there's no, um, uh, there's no standardized rule across think tanks, right? Different think tanks have different rules of promotion and things like that. In my uh, role, it's mostly having the freedom to talk outside to represent an institutional position if required. Uh, a lot of fundraising, uh, a lot of coordination and administrative control. Basically. Next question is from Bhujanga. What is the impact of US-China competition in military sphere? Sphere. Impact on whom? Because this is like a two-hour presentation I have to do. I can't condense it down. So yeah, could please you make it a very trite, small question. Yeah. And Ishan Sharma wants to know your predictions for state elections in India in 2022 and 2023 and your inside stories on current Maharashtra politics, especially on MNS, BJP and the opposition, mainly Shiv Sena. You know how many election predictions I've gotten wrong generally? Forget election predictions. I said Russia would, well, one year back, I said Russia was going to invade Ukraine. But just before, I didn't think the things were crossed. So I said that this time, at least Russia isn't invading Ukraine. I thought the Afghan troops wouldn't fall as fast as they did. The only election I've gotten right was Trump in 2016 and Bengal in, was it 2019 or 2020 election? Yeah, 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 2020, yeah. yeah. But still, 2021. Since, I'm, since I'm putting on my soothsayer hat out here, you know, I'm going to invoke all the spirits of Dambala and all of that voodoo gods and tell you, um, I think Rahul Gandhi is going to win everything. Uh, but anyway, seriously, 2022, Gujarat is left. And what's the other big state left? Uh, Himachal. Not Himachal is not a big state. Chhattisgarh or Jharkhand, one of them. Okay, but Gujarat is the big prize, I think. Right. Uh, Gujarat, I think the BJP will come back again with a very slender margin. But what you'll see is the end of the Congress out there. One third of the leaders will shift to the BJP, but two thirds will shift to AAP. 
And right now, I think there's a competition on between TMC and AAP to see who breaks the regional curse. Because remember, Delhi uh, was, we were all technically part of Punjab at one point of time. Punjab, Haryana, Himachal, Delhi. Delhi was an extension of Punjab almost in a sense, culturally and even otherwise. Uh, you know, even Western UP is in a sense a cultural extension of Punjab. Parts of it at least. So what you have here is, I don't see Punjab as having broken the linguistic regional barrier. For me, it was an extension of the Delhi results, albeit different, but culturally, ethnically, a very similar sort of victory. And TMC is in Bengal and it's gaining a foothold in Tripura, which is again Bengali speaking. So for me, Gujarat, TMC tried breaking the curse in Goa. They failed. AAP tried. AAP also failed. Now the question is, what will those two-thirds of Congress legislators who are fed up at having lost elections continuously for the last 25 years, what did they do? Do they switch to AAP or do they switch to TMC? And I think Gujarat will be the bellwether. It will decide who the 2024 candidate for prime minister will be. Will it be Mamta or what will it be Arvind Kejriwal? And that will, de that will be determined by Gujarat and what those two-thirds of Congress legislators do. Uh, we just crossed 45 minutes. You want to continue or you want to call it uh, closer? I'm getting... I'm getting a bit tired. I can do this. Sure. I can do the questions later. So we will we will do the questions and answers, and we will put it out as a separate segment. Thank you so much for all your support, viewers, and uh, Abhijit, take care, my friend, and uh, we'll be uh, coming back and doing it again next Monday. There's a possibility I might be in Delhi, Abhijit, so we can do a face to face. So we'll see how it goes. Yes, yes, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Namaskar.